It's a good time to be dead, at least if you want to keep in touch with the living. Almost a third of Americans say they have communicated with someone who has died, and they collectively spend more than $2 billion a year for psychic services on platforms old and new, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, television, whatever the medium, there's a medium. Casey Sapp in her article, Kindred Spirits in the May 31 issue of The New Yorker. Welcome to Delmarva Today. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. New Yorker staff writer Casey Sept is my guest this morning, and we're talking about spiritualism in her article, Kindred Spirits, in the May 31st issue of The New Yorker. Casey, welcome to Delmarva today. Thanks so much. It's really great to talk with you again. Let's begin with um, a basic uh, definition. What is spiritualism? Yeah, I think, you know, when most people use the term spiritualism, they have in mind a very specific transatlantic religious movement in the late 19th and early 20th century. And they're, they're thinking in particular of one that was focused on a very active relationship between the living and the dead. So that term spiritualism really invokes the idea that the dead, spirits from the next life, are able to communicate directly with us. So, you know, spiritualism in the popular imagination, both then and now was, you know, table turning, spirit wrappings, you know, the appearance of ectoplasm and supernatural phenomenon. And, and that's really, you know, when that term gets used, it's a kind of particular Victorian era religious movement that people have in mind. Is, is spiritualism a religion? Has it, does it evolve into a religion? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I, I think definitions are important. And I, I'm grateful, you know, a lot of historians have written about spiritualism and a lot of scholars of religious belief have worked very hard to kind of parse these things. And I think that, you know, first of all, plenty of spiritualists identified as a member of some organized religion. So quite a lot of them were Christians, for instance. Um, so they, you know, adhered to the tenets of Christianity, but they also went to seances or participated in these table turnings. And, you know, they, it was sort of Christianity plus for them. But I think from the spiritualist side, you know, this was really a movement, you know, in the mid 19th, late 19th century, that was a movement against organized religion. So spiritualists had mediums, you know, they had leaders who manifested particular talents, but there were no pastors, there were no clergy of that kind, there were no bishops, there was no kind of ecclesiology or, or big organized system. And, you know, as egalitarian as they could be in the 19th century, they didn't have creeds, they didn't have formal training. And it's why quite a lot of women became leaders in the spiritualist movement. There were no credentials. There was no seminary education. Um, so I think it's probably useful to distinguish from most organized religions that we think of and um, think of it a little more casually. Plenty of people opted into or out of particular spiritualist beliefs. And there certainly wasn't a kind of creedal code where you, know, you raised your hand and said, 
I am a spiritualist and I believe in these things, but you're right to ask if it evolved into that because like most really belief systems, it did evolve and formalize. And I think today people who identify as spiritualists do have a sense of some shared texts and some shared values. And um, you know, there's a lot of freedom within that. No two spiritualist churches are alike. So again, it's 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 very different from you know say Catholicism or Episcopalianism or or even you know Orthodox Judaism. Um, so it's an interesting question. It's certainly you know it's a religious belief system. Let's say even if we might not schematically be able to map it onto an organized religion. We'll start um, with um, the history, uh, if you would, of um, of spiritualism, and then. Uh, after that, uh, talk a little bit about how um, it did become uh, formalized and, and what uh, the formalization uh, looked like uh, later on. But uh, just as an example, um, who in the world are the Fox sisters? You you talk about them in your uh, in your article, and I, and I found these two children. Uh, very interesting in, 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 their, uh, in their capacity to capture the imagination of so many people. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, the Fox sisters. So, you know, I talk about in the article, there's this way you can take the long view or the short view of spiritualism. And I think when people take the short view, they always begin with the Fox sisters. And, you know, these are two young women They were living with their family in upstate New York in a little town called Hydesville. And in 1848, you know, they start hearing these rappings or, or knockings in the middle of the night. And they tell their parents about it. And then their parents tell their neighbors about it. And it's, it's not an exaggeration to say pretty quickly, everyone in New England, and then frankly, people all around the world had heard of the Fox sisters. And, you know, that sounds improbable, but it's really what happened. You know, they, they talked about these noises and they said they might be a ghost or a spirit and then they name that spirit and even there there's a little bit of an evolution you know they went from these inchoate declarations to claims that you know they could translate for the spirit and that the wrappings corresponded you know this is right around the time morse code was invented so it was a kind of supernatural morse code like every kind of knocking corresponded to a letter of the alphabet so the spirits were sending the messages and if they were transcribed you know they contain wisdom from the afterlife and you know again two young women they're not you know they're 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 in their double digits barely become this huge phenomenon you know hundreds of people pay money to hear them talk with the spirits and after that you know whole books and pamphlets are written about them and they become this huge phenomenon and quickly other people start to say other people in upstate new york other people in new england start to say well i can hear the spirits too and i can talk with them too and it just proliferates out again just from these two young women it's an incredibly interesting little social contagion that you know if you go and you look it's like the, the two least probable religious prophets of all time. But for decades, you know, they went around the world on these speaking tours and they would fill auditoriums wherever they went and newspapers covered their comings and goings. And, you know, some very famous people, here we are, we're on Delmarva today, you know, very famous people went to meet the Fox sisters and see them perform, including Frederick Douglass. You know, Hydesville is up in upstate New York where he, he goes after he emancipates himself and builds a family there. And 
quite a lot of the abolitionists and some of the kind of early liberal political activists of the 19th century were interested in spiritualism. And so lo and behold, a friend of Frederick Douglass says to him, you know, you got to come to a seance. So it was just this huge cultural phenomenon, but it begins with these two sisters. And then how talk a little bit about how why it captured the Victorian uh, era. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of theories about why, you know, this took off the way it did. And I, I think sometimes it's hard. Ideologies are always kind of hard to understand, like, where things come from and how they begin and how they flourish. And, you know, it's like if we try to figure out you and I, like, well, why were Beanie Babies so popular in the 90s? Or, you know, like, I can remember a time on the Eastern Shore before everybody wore Crocs and had a Yeti cooler. Like, to some extent, it's very hard to reconstruct the past in a way that, um, you know, is, is entirely diagnostic. But, you know, I, I'm kind of joking with those commercial examples, but, but there are some theories about spiritualism in this era. And I, I think one of the interesting ones is about child mortality you know, as an era where many people lost their children quite young and those people were desperate to know that they were okay and that they were taken care of. And so there's, there's a very human dimension to it. You know, people who a hundred years before would have paid for a mourning portrait of their children now paid a medium to try to talk to them. And, you know, that, that evolves, you know, by the, by the late 19th century, that's the civil war. And it's not just parents of young children, it's millions of people in this country who've lost a son, a nephew, a father. And, and that kind of culture of death, I think is one of the things people talk about that it really took off because you had a lot of Americans and then, you know, as time passes, whether it's the flu epidemic of 1918 or World War I or World War II, you know, when it starts to boom, spiritualism um, was huge in Europe too, especially in England. So these, these cultural moments that are associated with, you know, large spread death and separation kind of, you know, quick and painful and unresolved separation from loved ones. That's one theory. Um, there's a kind of technological theory about why it took off, which is, you know, this is, I mentioned Morse code, but this is the era when the telephone is invented, the telegram is invented, you know, railroads are coming into wide, you know, distribution. So people who used to be able to go, you know, a couple of miles an hour are suddenly going 30 or 40. Everything feels faster technologically, things feel just full of opportunity. And so, you know, if you can talk to your cousin in San Francisco by telegram, it doesn't seem that impossible that you could probably talk to your dead grandmother too. Um, and photography comes into being at this time and there's a whole wave of spiritualist photography where maybe folks have seen these, but you know, overexposures and all kinds of technical issues with photography, um, you know, by accident, by supernatural intervention, people claimed, you know, you could see spirits or ghosts or things like that. And so, you know, photography was documentary. It was perceived to have a great deal of reliability when it was first invented. You know, now we're also suspicious of doctored images and this sort of thing. But at the time there was a, a lot of credulity about photography. And so, you know, I think that technological explanation is, is interesting too. Um, now, again, I just think the past is a very hard period to reconstruct, you know, why the Fox sisters became famous and not two other teenagers in London or, you know, 
three other teenagers in, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who the heck knows? <laughs> you know, I, I think in that sense, it's, it's hard to know exactly why, but I do think, you know, culturally death was really prominent. Technologically, there was a high rate of change. Um, so there are interesting things happening in the 19th century that seem to set up the explosion of spiritualist belief. How did the attraction of, um, of spiritualism change as uh, over the years. Now you've indicated some, somewhat uh, with, with technology and uh, the mystery of, uh, of technology, but um, how, it, how else did, did uh, the attraction to spiritualism change over time? And, and what happened as as spiritualism became codified, if you would, or um, became institutionalized or formalized? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, another word you might use is commodified. No, oh, commodified. Um, well, that no, that that's a very different word, but uh, yeah. certainly, certainly, an excellent word is commodified. Yeah, but I, I think that is part of the story. You know, what began you know, when it was just these two young women and their neighbors were coming to hear the rappings or to interview them or to witness things, or, you know, it was just a collection of people in someone's living room and they were trying to channel the dead with a Ouija board. You know, this is the era when Ouija boards became popular. And, you know, I think that's very different than 1000 people paying, you know, a dollar each to sit in an auditorium and hear from George Washington or Plato or, oh, you know, okay. some, some, you know Martin, Martin Luther would sometimes appear at these and, you know, new teachings from ancient people. And in that sense, you know, one of the ways that it evolved was it moved from what I would consider the kind of, you know, sincere and authentic and personal religious experience into spectacle and entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, you know, I, I think historians of this period really look at it in terms of performance and they think about the entertainment industry. And, you know, these same venues were the ones being used for public debate or, you know, the kind of Ripley's believe it or not type stuff. And in that sense, it really does become commercialized. You know, yeah. certain mediums get famous. There are publishing houses devoted to spiritualism. Um, I was shocked to learn, you know, really there are like, like hundreds and hundreds of spiritualist periodicals. So they're newspapers, they're magazines, they're advertising, you know, services. And, and there's just a proliferation of a kind of for-profit spiritualist industry, which again, is completely understandable. Everyone wanted to try it. And, you know, it's like anything else. I was I was running an errand in Easton the other day, and you know, there's a there's a psychic medium out on Ocean Gateway, out on Route 50. Hmm. You know, the, every every town had one of these at the time, and some of them have persisted. And you know, you you go to um, you know New York City, and there's like three tarot readers out on the street, you know, trying to get you to stop and have a tarot reading done. So I think that's one of the things that happens is it just expands and expands and expands and some of that interplay, I think, is you know really important to look at because it moved from the realm of individual and personal experience into you know a marketplace. And in that sense, you know that's where I talk about this some in the article. But there was a whole. Not only was there a whole spiritualism industry, there was a whole industry to debunk spiritualism. 
you know, people like Harry Houdini, you know, went around and he was obsessed with debunking these mediums, you know, and, and that's to say he felt like there was a lot of fraud, there was a lot of predation that people who would have been happy to call themselves magicians 10 years earlier were suddenly preying upon their audiences because they claimed to be doing something else. You know, they were not calling it magic. They were not calling it illusions. They were trying to market and manipulate people into thinking these were tricks other than what they were. Um, so I think that's part of the, the story and the evolution and the tension between, you know, sincere believers and just absolutely rabid, you know, debunkers. And I think Harry Houdini is probably the best example of that. You know, he would just, he would go undercover over and over again to a medium show to figure out how exactly they were doing it. And, you know, he would publish pamphlets showing the devices and the kind of trickery they would use for some of the ectoplasmic manifestations, or, you know, he um, just devoted a lot of energy to what he thought was revealing a fraud. And, you know, that led to a lot of tension with friends of his who identified as spiritualists. But I think that's some of what happens. And it's, it's what happens with any religious movement as it grows. Um, you know, there's a deep tension between the authentic and the exploitative and, you know, a really, a really tight rope, like walk between, you know, what is authentic and what is interpersonal and what becomes institutionalized or commercialized. Um, so spiritualism, you know, it was, it was, a, it got started really quickly and it boomed really quickly. And I think it, you know, it confronted some of the tensions that it has taken other faiths hundreds or thousands of years to kind of come into conflict with. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it is interesting. And I, um, I, I, I know, you were interested in this. I, I say in the article for the New Yorker, you know, some of these were easy marks. And I think that's kind of harsh language to use for believers. Um, but, you know, frankly, I'm an easy mark, so I feel comfortable using it, which yeah. is to say, you know, I really do think that a lot of us long for meaning and we look for you know, experiences that seem to be more than materialism and the world feels saturated and, you know, with numinous experience. And I think if you are that kind of person who's open and desires to believe and desires to have those kinds of experiences, you're vulnerable. And I think this was a movement of vulnerability. And, you know, I, I think I talk in the piece about Mary Todd Lincoln, um, you know, the widow of the president and Mary Todd Lincoln lost three sons um, she obviously lost her husband in a very, you know, sudden and shocking assassination that, you know, rendered the heart of the country. And, you know, she's a spiritualist, you know, she brought, she brought mediums into the White House for seances with the boys. Um, and, and after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, she hired the kind of most famous spirit photographer in America to produce a portrait. And I wouldn't say Mary Todd Lincoln is an easy mark. Um, but I would say, you know, there was someone just, you know, unbelievably vulnerable to grief and unbelievably subject to loss and mourning. And yep. I think in that space, it's really interesting to think about how a movement like spiritualism, which grows out of what I think is just this completely universal and understandable impulse, um, 
you know, becomes a movement like any other. And, and it's, it's vulnerable to fraud and fraudsters. And I think, you know, easy mark sounds like I'm being incredibly harsh to the practitioners, but I, I think, you know, a lot of the blame is, is, you know, with the fraudsters, not, not the people who wanted to talk to their dead children. Um, you know, in, in that sense, grief, grief and the desire for belief and meaning um, leaves a lot of us really vulnerable to all kinds of things. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's one of the things when you read some of the histories of spiritualism and, you know, when you when you go and you look at newspaper coverage of these people, you know, doctors who would go undercover to figure out whether somebody was really manifesting a spirit from their stomach or, you know, whether the dead fingerprints of someone's brother were realistic, you know, there, there was a lot of fraud and there was a lot of showmanship and people were always kind of pushing the boundaries of things. And, you know, God bless even the legitimate mediums, people who had had these reported experiences of authentic manifestations of the afterlife, you know, when you have to do it five times a week for 20 different people, I think it does just lend itself to hucksterism. So that that's all embedded in this history. And, you know, I, I think the tension between the real and, and the fake is, is part of why this is still such a fascinating period um, of American and, you know, Victorian history. Well, the money, uh, the money involved, I'm sure, brought out the hucksters um, as well. But uh, what is the state of, um, of spiritualism today? Where, where are we? You mentioned a third of the people uh, claim to have contacted uh, someone uh, who has died and um, are spending this uh, huge uh, amount of money for mediums. What, what, what is the state of, of spiritualism today? Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting question. And the, the data, um, just for people who are interested, I love, you know, the Pew um, Forum does all of these great statistical surveys of Americans, not just on religion, but on politics and their reading habits and, you know, their driving habits. and. Pew is a great resource to try and, you know, if you're interested in understanding statistically American demographics, I love Pew and, and I do think they do a lot of great surveys on religion. So that survey about talking to ghosts or being in touch with the dead was conducted by Pew. And I was really fascinated, you know, it, it is a large number of Americans and, you know, there are all sorts of other things they ask people, do you believe in angels? Do you believe in demons? You know, do you believe in an afterlife? Um, how often do you go to church? They, they survey all kinds of beliefs and practices. And so I, I was obviously interested in the questions about the dead for this piece. And I think it is really surprising. It's a very persistent belief. Um, it has not ebbed, if anything, it's, it's, it's grown in the last decade or so. And that's also true in the UK. Um, spiritualism is really popular in the, in the United Kingdom. And in Brazil, um, there's a slightly different religious history, but um, spiritualism in Brazil, there's a, there's a very popular strand of um, spiritualist belief called spiritists. And there, you know, there are millions of adherents and they're worshiping in spiritist churches. And in the UK, they're gathering in spiritualist communities. And in the US even, there are spiritualist churches who, you know, in the Zoom era of, of COVID, you can log on to any of their services and they're still running retreat centers. You know, they're still credentialing mediums and offering um, healing services and gathering for worship. And so it's, it's really thriving. And I think that surprises people because again, 
spiritualism is most often presented as, oh, it came and went in the 19th century. And it was this weird American thing. And right away, it was not a weird American thing. It did become a global phenomenon. And I, I think more importantly, it never ended. You know, there are still spiritualist churches today. Um, and I think kind of beyond that, I think those are the like capital S spiritualists. But I think one of the things we've, we've been talking about is there's a kind of spiritualist belief that's beyond that. And, you know, again, since it's not necessarily an organized religion, you know, there aren't card carrying spiritualists for the most part. Then we're talking about even larger numbers of people who have consulted a medium or have held a seance or who authentically believe that, you know, one time at a party, there was a Ouija board that did something or that a candle blew out or that, you know, when they were walking in the Grand Canyon, they communed with their, you know, dead parents or, you know, a woman who knows that when she goes to the grave of her child, you know, she had a stillbirth, let's say, she can communicate with that child and there's a sense of presence. And, you know, that's where the numbers really do swell. And, and that's where you get to the billions of dollars and, you know, attempts to communicate with those people or, you know, to buy a spiritualist journal or to read a memoir of someone who's had contact with the dead to think about how you can cultivate those practices. And, and in that sense, you know, boy, is it more alive than ever. Well, it's clear that um, spiritualism as defined at, at least narrowly with um, the, um, the possibility of being able to communicate uh, with uh, those who have died. That, that sense of spiritualism uh, clearly uh, meets uh, a need of, uh, of some people uh, today. And uh, could you say just a word about, uh, in, in terms of your research and your sense, what, what kind of need in a, in a more specific sense, do people do you feel that people have that brings them to this desire to want to communicate with uh, those who have died? Oh my gosh! I mean, I I really think it's so interesting. I I have some friends who are um, you know Christian ministers or they're um, you know Jewish chaplains in hospitals and. I think that, you know, look, mortality is a real thing. It's a universal phenomenon. And I think, you know, whether we've lost someone we love and just miss them, or we've lost someone who we had a conflict with that we never resolved. And so there's a lack of closure. I just think it's completely natural to wonder about the boundary between life and death. And I think the kind of emotional current of wanting an ongoing relationship is, is a strong one. And I think even in religions where, is the, where there's a coherent theology of you know, reincarnation in Eastern religion or um, eternal life in Western religions, you know, there's still this very human impulse to cross the line and to penetrate the boundary. And I think in that sense, you know, I, I just feel like you know, I have a friend whose daughter just, um, a teenager just died in a car crash. And, you know, she left in the middle of the day to run an errand with her boyfriend. And, you know, no closure at all. You know, just the most yeah. horrifying 
thing you can imagine, you know, to lose a child in the middle of the day. And there's no good way to lose a child. I don't mean to say that, but of course it's understandable, you know, the desire to communicate with her and to find closure. And, you know, that's true if you lost your father at 99 years old, you know, <laughs> no, the age does not console us in this way. And, you know, even very good death leave us vulnerable to the appetite of wanting more. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, it's completely understandable. And I think that's the impulse. And I really do think, you know, you don't have to have lived through the Civil War. I mean, you can live through COVID. But you just lost someone. You right. couldn't go to their funeral. You couldn't say goodbye. And I really do think in that sense, it's strange that we talk about spiritualism as this kind of weirdo Victorian phenomenon when, you know, it does feel universal to me and it goes beyond religious belief. I know I have plenty of friends who are atheists who, you know, miss their grandparents right. <laughs> or, you know, really, you know, lost their best friend in college or in Vietnam. And, you know, the idea, even, even the, the most diehard rationalist materialist you know, who denies anything spiritual, um, I think still occasionally experiences that yearning. And even when they suppress it or even when they talk themselves out of it, that's part of what it's so interesting to think about in the 19th century and to feel connected to today. Well, Casey, you end your article with what I think is, uh, is really a beautiful, uh, a beautiful comment. I, I would appreciate it if you might read that, that paragraph of yours. Sure. So this is the end of this piece in The New Yorker. Arthur Conan Doyle's long view may well be the right one. For as he wrote, there is no time in the recorded history of the world when we do not find traces of preternatural interference and a tardy recognition of them from humanity. The dread of mortality has always inspired the dream of immortality and the hopes that animated Victorian spiritualism are eternal, to bridge the divide between ourselves and those we have lost, to know that they are safe and content and to believe that they are thinking of us just as much as we are thinking of them. Well, Casey, thank you for uh, a very informative and, and penetrating uh, article I, and uh, I I greatly appreciate your joining me and and talking with us about it today. This is Delmarva today. Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm your host, Harold Wilson. <laughs>